You know, I shared with the men yesterday morning, um, just, I love just connecting the dots of what God is doing. That VBS, that one event, that was amazing. But I think it's important just to take note and say, God, what are you doing in our church and in Albany? Not just was that one event good, and it was, it was amazing. And when I share with other people, uh, friends in ministry and my family, about 80 kids and the huge ministry team we had during the week, let me tell you, my friends were pretty impressed um, at at what the Lord is doing here. And um, when I look at this whole past year of VBS, the Easter egg hunt of 2,000 plus people in the mall, go all the way back to last October, and the uh, the trunk or treat, I almost forgot what it was called, it was so long ago. Um, now those are three events, and what what all three of those things showed me is there is a huge need for us to minister to families and children in Albany. That's the opportunity. And you have to see what the Lord is doing and go with it. And don't just say, well, that was a cool event. What's next? Because um, we're not here to invent ministry. We're here to see what it is the Lord is wanting to do. We're the ones partnering with him. We're not the ones being so clever. We're going to, you know, grow this big church. We're not. We're, I'm not clever. I, I just confess that to you. Um, I'm just not that smart. And so what it is exciting is to see what the Lord is doing. And when you have that perspective, that takes the pressure off of us to feel like we have to manufacture something. And it it allows us just to rest and to say, Lord, you're doing something. What is it? And can we get in on it? As Pastor Chuck used to say, you want to know what want to know how to find ministry? See what the Lord's doing and get in on it. That's ministry. And so uh, related to kids ministry, VBS, and men's ministry, do you know these are connected? Children's ministry and men's ministry and women's ministry. The connection is that the children, many of the young families and children of Albany are from broken homes. And they're only, maybe not only, but one of their places to find an example of godly moms and dads and grandparents is you, the church. Maybe their homes don't have that. Schools should provide it, but it's being less and less of a godly environment, and we know that. So what's left is church. And I will tell you, that was me. My mother took me to church. My father was an alcoholic, so I didn't know which way to go. And even though I was in church, the lack of a fatherly, godly influence really left me with this huge void in my life. And as a little boy, I remember others in the church trying to fill in that gap. I can remember to this day, the Sunday morning, when a family, a mom and dad came to me and said, there's a kid's camp starting tomorrow. 
if we pay your way, would you go? I think I was 10 or 11 years old, and I went. And I can still remember Bible verses I memorized at that camp. And I was thinking, even this morning, they don't even know that I am now a pastor and how much they contributed to my life. And that's you. Just, you may not even talk to some of these kids, but they come through here, they look at you, they look at how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to others in the church, how you relate to kids in the church, and you are showing them some some sense of normal. And the family of God is a place to make an impact, I believe, on the, the families of Albany. So I just want you to get the bigger picture while you're deciding if you even want to come to church today. I want you to know there's more going on than whether you felt like being here today. And the only thing that makes this worthwhile, thought that was me. That wasn't me. Um, Oh, it was me. I hate it when I get notifications during church. (laughs) What makes this worthwhile, the labor of ministry, the the challenges of ministry, uh, dealing with all the different things that come with it, of running a church and planning events, the only thing makes it worthwhile is that the Lord is doing something and we get to be a part of it. There's really no other reason. And that we look back and go, well, that was worthwhile. That was worthwhile. So everything is connected in church. We're not separate silo ministries, the women's ministry, the men's ministry, the youth, the children. We're not our own separate little clubs. It's all connected. We are all the family of God ministering to families in Albany. So I want us to be mindful. I believe the Lord is working. And just a reminder, you know, as we're shifting into seasons, um, we're shifting, we have shifted into summer. Um, Just to remember, if you could, you are the, we're working together. It's not us at the church, you know, putting things on. We are the workers of the church. And if you, we just need you to continue through this season shift, to pray, to serve, and to give. To pray, to serve, and to give. Those are the three ways in which we together are continuing to see the church sustained and moved forward. And often, we know you're praying. Some of you are amazing prayer warriors, uh, and others of you are just especially strong at serving Others of you are the, are the big givers, and the big givers, along with a lot of little givers, sustain the church. Um, and it's amazing to see how the Lord provides, but it's all, all really necessary as we are just working together. Amen? Amen. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 12. And um, I'll just tell you that I was not out at a surfing contest. Uh, this week with my red face. Um, 
This past week, I wasn't able to be here or last Sunday. I had to go through a face treatment. Um, I grew up in Southern California near the beach. We never heard of sunscreen in the 60s and 70s. We went to the beach, we took a cube of butter and scraped, you know, rubbed it on our arm because we wanted more sun, right? I'm just kidding about the cube of butter. But we just wanted more sun. So now, now here, all these years later, uh, my dermatologist says we have to, you know, remove all of that sun damage so it doesn't become cancer. So literally, I've had a topical chemotherapy on my face. My entire face was removed this week. So I'm preparing for a career as a male model. <laughs> I'm sure I could do it, yeah. Grandpa leisure wear. <laughs> so a few days ago, I looked pretty bad. I looked pretty bad, but my whole face came off in a, war, in a washcloth. And so now it's, I just have new skin, but it's pretty red. And, and this is good compared to do two days ago. But by next week, I'll look amazing. So pretty amazing. All right. I'm going to do something different today for our study. I'm going to take just a short section of scripture and then give you the exploded view, the overview of the Bible. This is the kind of Bible study I wish somebody would have taught me years ago to help me understand my perspective of all of this information in the Bible. Doesn't it get overwhelming to try and figure out what this has to do with this? And do I really need to read Leviticus? And what does that really have to do with John 3.16? And, you know, to connect all these pieces, it was kind of confusing for me. So us preachers, we give you one little scripture at a time and say, now go be a good person. But often the information is disconnected. I want to know what to do with each new bit of information. How does it fit within the whole picture? It's kind of like you pick up a piece of a carburetor and you're going, what is this and where does it go? Or you put some new piece of furniture together and there's leftover parts on the floor and you're going, well, I guess, I hope we didn't need this. <laughs> you know, where does this fit? And so I love... Bible survey overview, and I want to understand the main picture. My, my wife loves jigsaw puzzles. I don't. I'm terribly bored uh, after about 15 minutes. But she can sit and do thousand-piece, really complicated jigsaw puzzles. My job is to buy her new puzzles that she can't put together. But if you get one of these puzzles, you get, you know, you dump all the pieces out, turn them all right side up. And then what's really the first thing you're going to do is really study the picture on the box. Or all these pieces don't make sense. Are you with me? That's the Bible. If you don't know the picture on the box, you can do whatever you want with any of these pieces. And people do do whatever they want with Bible verses. They come up with all kinds of weird ideas. But we're again at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Boy, we're excited about that, but that's a big topic. 
And how does that relate into the flow of the Bible and world events and what's even happening right now? So I'm just going to take an easy subject today. Is that okay? World events, Bible history. No problem. In the next 30 minutes. Stay with me. Let's read Luke 12, 35 to 40. Jesus says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in his second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So just the very basic observation is Jesus is saying he is going to come again, right? Anybody can pick up on that. And the second lead is that when he comes, we need to be ready. If you can pick up on any things, anything about this passage, it is those two points. Now, questions about when or what we should look for and all these things, uh, you know, we might have to work out those things. But remember, the most obvious point, the Lord is saying, I'm coming again, and you need to be ready. Are you someone who is ready when your friends say, I'm going to pick you up to go to the beach or go somewhere, and they say, be ready at five o'clock, I'm going to pick you up. Are you somebody who is ready or late? You know exactly what time it is. You had all day to get ready. Now, I was the kind of kid, little kid, I would be dressed and ready at the front door 30 minutes before my friends were coming. I was so excited to go. <coughs> my 12-year-old grandson has all day to get ready. We are out the door, and then he goes, what does he say? Oh, I forgot something. You had, you had all day. We've been telling you for the past two hours. I'm ready. I'm ready, Grandpa. I'm ready. And the brain doesn't even work until we get out the door. Oh, 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 one more thing. And we're all in the car. Some people are just wired like that. You know, God love him. I just want you to know, because I'm a person who is ready, I'm a better person <laughs> than people who are chronically late. And I feel good about that. I'm just better than you, all right? Okay, I'm not judgmental at all. We're in the final months before the cross. Jesus is preparing the disciples to take the mantle, the keys of ministry, before he goes to the cross and goes to heaven. 
The two simple illustrations he gives here about being ready is of a Jewish wedding and then a separate illustration of a thief coming at any time in the night. In a Jewish wedding, it would typically happen at night. Um, The groom would have already added a room onto his father's house. Do you know John 15 where he says, in my father's house are many mansions? In a Jewish family, the groom added a room onto his father's house. They would have gone off to the wedding, come back to that house to live. And they could have come back to the house at any time, knocked on the door, surprised to celebrate with the servants of the house. And they could have arrived at any time. Now notice in the illustration, they weren't, The wedding party wasn't arriving back at the house to be served, but to then serve the servants of the house. Do you know that? Jesus returns to serve us. Because we are celebrating with him. It could come at any time of the night, the first watch, the second watch. So those were times in the evening in the Jewish Um, the Jewish um, time scale. The first watch is 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight, and it would just go that way through the night. The second illustration of readiness is of a thief who could come at any night, at any time of the night. You wouldn't drop your guard if you know you lived in a neighborhood where something could happen like that. If there's any noise in my house, my wife is going, check that out. What is that? Check it out. It doesn't do any good to say it was nothing. I know, but you need to check it out. The answers to the second coming and world events really fit into what we might call a worldview. Have you ever heard of such a thing as as a worldview? That's the what we say is, is the questions of where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going after death? This is, you know, where did the world come from? Those big questions of life. What is my purpose? All of those come under, this is a college course you would take about a worldview. Now you either have a secular worldview, meaning what they taught you out in school or university, or we might have a biblical worldview. Because the world has answers to those questions, the Bible has answers to those questions. Essentially, what's most common is the evolution worldview, or it's random chance, which means there is no God, no purpose, no eternity. That is a secular worldview. And as harsh as that sounds, it's hard for even non-Christians to fully process their completely secular worldview. There is no God, there is no purpose, there is no eternity. Because even non-Christians think there must be some purpose to life. The biblical worldview is of intelligent design, which means that we are accountable to God It means we were created for a purpose, and after this life, it's heaven or hell. Everything boils down 
most common in our culture to those two worldviews. If people say, well, I don't have a worldview, I'm just living my own life. Well, that is the secular worldview. I am God, I am in charge of everything. What's fascinating is that the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in their hearts or into the hearts of man. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning. Eternity, even people who don't ever think of God, there's something in them that is compelled to ask, there must be something more. What is it? They, they just know something. There's something more than just me gratifying myself. So the question is, why would we believe the Bible? I think that's a reasonable question. It's not right for us preachers just to say, you better believe the Bible just because it says so. It's reasonable, and I would ask anybody in any religion, tell me what you believe. Secondly, tell me why you believe it. And third, tell me how you know it's true. I'm not going to believe it just because you say you believe it. And I've had people in other religions say, well, I just believe it's true. Well, that's not a reason. You trusted your spiritual leaders and they told you it was true, they could be wrong. And we have to have real confidence in God's word. The primary test of reliability of the Bible is an internal test within scripture, and that is its ability to tell the future. And in fact, God says to people in the Old Testament, go ask your gods, to tell you what's going to happen. Go ask them to tell you anything, and they can't. But God says, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen tomorrow. When Moses was preparing the children of Israel to then hear another prophet after him, he gave them a test. This is a test that I would apply to any world religion. Because I want to know, is this person speaking or this written sacred book of theirs, is it truly from God or not? It's an easy test. It's Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. You should write this down. Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. Moses says, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Did you hear that? If a prophet speaks and says, this is what's going to happen, and it does not come to pass, Moses says, well, that's easy. Everyone knows that person is not speaking a word from God. They are what we would say is a false prophet. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. The world's religions were founded by people who claimed to be prophets, who made predictive prophecies, virtually all of them. 
And those predictive prophecies failed. Some other time I can give you the examples. I don't know why they make these predictions. They're bound to fail and they're just left exposed as a false prophet. It's happened over and over again. The primary test that we have of listening to Jesus is he said, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to sinful men, crucified, and the third day I will rise again. Did it happen? It absolutely happened. And he was seen by hundreds of witnesses after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Just a couple of things that are happening now in the world that point us to end times prophecy and the second coming of Jesus is Revelation talks about buying and selling with a mark on your hand. Everyone knows that. Anytime something comes up, is that the mark of the beast? Did you see the story this week that Amazon, you know, Amazon owns Whole Foods and in Whole Foods, they set up a pay point system where you can pay by waving your palm over the pay point system. It's not the mark of the beast. Don't freak out. But it's definitely the precursor to the system, the technology that makes it all possible. I'll have some asparagus. That's it. Another world event that you need to be aware of is Ezekiel 38 talks about a alliance of nations that will come against Israel in the last days. Led by Gog, Persia, and make sure I get this right. Gog, Persia, Tagarma, but Gog is the main lead nation. And we've talked about before, Gog is what nation? Russia. Persia is Iran. Have you heard about Iran in the news this week? Well, those two nations are going to meet with a third nation this week to make plans for something they are going to do together. That third nation is Tagarma, is Turkey. Now, for reference, those three nations never work together. They don't get along. This is not like some friendly relationship that's been going on for years and years. They don't work together. But suddenly something has happened and they are going to pull their resources together. So this is why we are paying attention to the Bible and the news. And Jesus said, pay attention. Are you watching? Are you watching? Now, don't rush up here right away. I need a few more minutes. Can you, are you with me today? Because... All that was my introduction. I want to give you an overview of Bible history that really makes sense and will be the, the, the picture on the, the jigsaw puzzle box. The entire Bible is one story. It's not a bunch of chopped up stories that don't relate. It might be hard to see how they relate, I don't see how these pieces fit, but they do. And once you back off and you see the big picture, then you go, there it is. The entire Bible can be told in seven events. And you should write this down. Because it is all one story 
of God working out one plan from beginning to end, from creation to consummation or creation to revelation. Are you ready? The first event is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. The question is why? Well, 1 John says God is love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And you ask the question, what if Adam and Eve had not sinned? And before they sinned, they just essentially had an intimate love relationship with God. Think of God as God the Father. And when we have kids, we, we have kids for the same reason God had kids, okay? Let's not make this too complicated. We have kids and we love them most of the time. God loved them and does love them. But God gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. And what if they hadn't sinned? The earth would be filled with people who also knew and walked intimately with God. It's that simple. So creation sets forth the beginning of just love, a love relationship with God. That is the original purpose of creation and our purpose to know God and to walk with him. Then what unfolds through the entire Bible is disruption to that plan. And then in the end, bringing the plan back together. So I'm going to tell you points number one and seven are the bookends of this single plan. But the second step is then the temptation, Genesis 2. God said you can eat of any tree of the garden except for this one of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so you ask the question, if God wanted them to be walking with him in love, why did he do this? Allow this temptation is because love is a choice. Love is a choice. Did God know ahead of time they would sin? Yes. When you had children, did you know ahead of time that they would disobey you? What's the answer? Why did you have kids if you knew they would disobey you anyway? Because you already had a plan in which you would intervene and train them and bring them, try and keep them in relationship with you. So before you get too judgmental about God, you can point the finger right back at yourself. Creation, temptation. Third is the fall of man, which is a major event that comes out of the temptation and man's sin don't is a that sin is the point of separation and bringing sin and sickness into the world the single act of acting independent of god brought a consequence that brought the decline of the world sickness decay war suffering, all of these things, which are the consequences of our choice or Adam's choice. Why did God allow it? Romans 8 tells us 
that God allowed the world to come under suffering because it is that very suffering that would cause us to come back to God and to seek him for redemption. Do you know that? In the suffering, I cry out to God. If I am never suffering, if I am all good all the time, I don't need God. I'm okay. <laughs> Maybe you've noticed that in your own life when you suddenly have a problem, your prayer life goes way up. Amen? All right, I just got you to pray right there. The fourth event of the Bible, which is significant in this story of the love of God, is the, the birth of Israel. And it's essentially this. Once man has turned away from God and the nations of the world start forming, there was an official, an official turning away from God at the Tower of Babel. What happened there was that those nations or those families intended to build a civilization that would form formally exclude God. That was a declaration. We don't want God here. That was Genesis 11. Do you know what happens in Genesis 12? God makes a covenant with Abraham to say, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. So the question I've had people ask me is if God loves the world, why would he single out one nation, Israel, and love them exclusively? These are the kind of questions you ask when you don't know the Bible. Now, the real question is, what does God do when the nations of the world exclude him? That's what really happened. Genesis 11 the nations or families of the world said to God, get lost. And because God loves the world, what does he do? He forms one nation, Israel, and that name Israel means ruled by God. They were not to be exclusive from the world as if they were the only people God loved. And in fact, their very purpose was to be a demonstration of God's love to the other nations. Isaiah 40, there is no other. You, so their job is to be the one nation who would be a shining light to the world, to the nations who have rejected God. That's how much and that's how tenacious God is. And he is simply following a plan, creation, temptation, the fall of man, then the birth of Israel, one nation under God. Then the rest of the Old Testament is God working through this one people, this nation, and helping them be a people who would actually walk with God and know him. And all there's a whole lot of trouble and their rebellion and all kinds of problems in the nation of Israel through the Old Testament. But even through their obstinance, God works through them to bring his son into the world. That is the, the fifth major event of the Bible, and that's the incarnation or the birth of Jesus. His very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. His name means God with us. 
the Son of God comes through this nation, is born into the world, so many promises in the Old Testament of who he would be, where he would be born, Micah 5, 2, that he would both be eternal in nature and born in the city of Bethlehem. The details are so specific, so numerous, that no one could say, well, this is just a fluke, that this one baby would be the Messiah. The manner of his birth um, predicted that he would be crucified even before Crucifixion was even invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. And so all of these details, predictions, fulfillments give us assurance that we can believe. But one of the things that's interesting to me is that the Son of God becomes man not just to die on the cross, But his death on the cross is what we might say is a price paid. You know, he said on the cross to telestai, which means it is finished. Have you ever heard that phrase? It also can be translated paid in full. It means the price to pay for our sins is paid in full. But also he became Uh, an Old Testament phrase, he became what's called the kinsman redeemer. How many of you have ever heard that phrase? Let me see your hands. A kinsman redeemer. That's that's a Jewish terminology. In the Old Testament, if, if a husband dies leaving a widow, leaving a wife with no kids and land, then a near kinsman, like a, a, you know, a, a male relative could then marry her purchase the land, keep the land within the family and have children and keep the land within that family line. He was called a kinsman redeemer so that the land would not be lost. The family lineage would not be lost. When God created the world, he gave it to Adam and Eve for them to exercise dominion over it. This is a big concept. But when they sinned, it defaulted to Satan. You remember when when Paul and Jesus called Satan the God of this world or the ruler of this world? And then when Satan tempted, Jesus says, and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, they're mine and I can give them to whomever I choose. Jesus didn't correct him. Satan was saying something that was true. He had become the ruler of this world. And when Jesus became one of us, he became a near kinsman. He then was also willing to pay the price, and then he had the worth, the worth to pay the price. There's a, you know, in Matthew 13, there's that parable about the, the man who went, who went and found a field and then he sold everything to buy the field to get the treasure hidden in the field, Matthew 13. You know that story? It's a familiar story. Preachers often turn that story around and say, now you need to give up everything in order to have Jesus. 
That's not the interpretation of the story. We are not the ones paying everything to get the treasure Jesus hidden in the field. The man who bought the field is Jesus. He paid the great price to buy the field. In other words, to redeem the land and keep it in the family to get the treasure hidden in the field. And what is the treasure? The treasure is you. A lot of preachers get that kind of wrong. We don't have any price to pay. We don't pay a price. For our salvation, Jesus paid the price. And then the last connecting dot of this kinsman redeemer, Jesus paying the price to redeem the world. Have I lost you yet? Kind of? A few of you? Okay, see the movie afterwards and put it together. Okay? This is really important information. And if you can take notes, go see the movie. Watch this afterwards. This is worth you going over many times because this is important information. I know this is a lot of information if you're not used to Bible study, but this is important. In Revelation, when John says that no one was found worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals, Do you know that passage? That scroll is exactly the way a title deed to a piece of land would be prepared after land was purchased. It's in the book of Jeremiah. All those references, they're Old Testament. Who, Who is it who paid the price, sealed up the title deed to the land, and hid it away? And who is the one who is going to come back, who had paid the price, who is worthy, who had the worth, who has the ability to pay the price, who is the one who is the rightful owner of the piece of land who is going to come and take the scroll and loose the seals and take possession of his land? It's Jesus. It is all imagery of land purchase. It's not just flowery language. It is redemption. It is the kinsman redeemer. He paid the price for this piece of ball of dirt that we live on, that he created, that was defaulted to Satan, and that he paid the price for to bring it back into the family of God. That is the significance of the crucifixion. And it is fulfilled at his second coming is the seventh event. The second coming might be the consummation of his whole plan. The revelation of his plan. The revelation of who he is. All all of these events are working out one simple plan. Do you know that? They're not separate stories. They're not weird things that happen. Well, I don't understand that. God from the beginning created us to know him. And all the way in Revelation 21, verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, 
nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. God knows what he's doing. He's told us what he's doing. And even if we're in the middle of it and we get confused, you need to know that things are on schedule. Russia, Iran, and Turkey are meeting up. You can go to Whole Foods and buy your asparagus with cash, the old school way. But what we need to be aware of is that we have complete confidence in God and his word. You can trust his word. And back to Luke, we need to be ready. Be careful that you're not so caught up and worried about other things that don't matter. The great thing about getting older is to look back and you realize, what what was I worried about all those things? Why are you worrying about so many things that don't matter very much? So before you get old, go ahead and just calm the heck down. Okay, write that in your notes right now. Calm the heck down. Forgive me for swearing, but. (laughs) Get your eyes back on the Lord. Everything that you're so worried about is going to pass away. The Lord knows your needs. He sees you. He cares for you. See what he's doing and go with it. And together, we, we want to be a place that would be a testimony to our city. A place of what normal might look like. Of just what it looks like to be a church that knows God and to love God. Where children who don't have, you know, Healthy homes can just see, you know, people who love the Lord. This morning, we're going to receive communion together. And the way that we're going to do it is there are baskets here at the front of the stage. And as the worship team leads us in a final song, uh, I encourage you when you're ready just to come up and get the elements out of the basket, go back to your seat, have a moment of prayer between you and the Lord. and you remember that Jesus gave this to the disciples hours before the cross. It was part of the Passover supper. He said, this bread, this bread is my body broken for you. This blood is, or this cup is my blood shed for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. We're not doing this because this act cleanses us. We're doing this to to remind us that the Lord has already provided the cleansing sacrifice for us. Just ask the Lord to cleanse your heart, to forgive you, to renew you, and just, just use this moment to get refocused.